You're listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code Perfy for 15% off today. That's one small step for brands. One giant leap for brand kind. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Food Chain. Today we got Will Nitza, the founder and CEO of IQ Bar with us. Welcome to the show, Will. Thanks for having me, man. Glad you're here. Hey, Will, we start every episode with, um, you know, the founder story. I want to make a place for founders to be able to share, you know, their background, how they got to where they are today and what inspired their brand. Yeah, sure. I'll give you the semi-long version. So I studied psychology and uh, neuroscience and political science as an undergrad at Harvard, got really interested in the brain, both from a psychological as well as a physiological standpoint. You know, when I became a senior, I couldn't really figure out how to parlay that into, into a job. And so at, right out of college, I took a job in software at a software startup doing sales and marketing to sort of by default. I didn't want to do finance or consulting. And I couldn't figure out how to take this love for you know all things brain and make a job out of it. So that was my first job. So basically I was selling really expensive software to oil and gas companies. And I wasn't all that passionate about software or oil and gas, which I learned probably three to six months in. But concurrently, I got really interested in nutrition. And really a big driver of that was I just didn't feel good physically. Like I had a standard American diet, felt lethargic, got brain fog, was getting headaches, things like that on a daily basis. And also at that time, Whole30 and the whole food diet more broadly and paleo and all these diets were blowing up. This was like 2015, 16. So I, I just got went down a rabbit hole on all of them. And then I read, I think just by happenstance, I think it was an Amazon like recommended Kindle read or something like that. There's a book called Grain Brain by David Perlmutter. And I read it and it totally blew my mind because I had always thought about nutrition as it relates to the body. And this was centering on nutrition and cognitions intersection. So the things you eat impact how your brain works today, but also if you eat a certain set of things for 30, 40, 50 years, you know, you'll get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or, or just garden variety cognitive decline. And so that was like fascinating to me. Uh, I never thought about that. And, and I started looking at the marketplace and like, does brain food exist? Cause I, I don't really like cooking. I, I like I was so busy and I just didn't have time for cooking. So I just generally like ready to eat products or ready to drink products. And so I was like, huh, what is your brain? Does brain food exist out there? Like, is anyone combining all these things that are good for your brain, like curcumin and resveratrol? And, and no one was part I skipped is I was also really into startups and entrepreneurship. And so I thought, okay, don't really like my current job. I'm into startups and entrepreneurship. I'm, fascinated. I still had that love of psychology and neuroscience. Maybe I can create a brain food product. And also that product doesn't exist on the market. And so I had no background in CPG. I'd never worked for a CPG company. No one I knew ever worked for a CPG company. So basically I started at scratch and I just called every CPG entrepreneur in Boston and sat down with them and asked them a hundred questions. And 
at the end of that process, I had a, a basic roadmap. I can get into you know the ensuing uh, year if you'd like, but that was really like the origin story of everything. You know, funny story. My first job out of college, I thought it was going to be you know every senior in college I think thinks they're going to start making a lot of money right when they graduate. Definitely wasn't the case. I graduated '07 during the last recession, and I took a job selling. It was network security. They're actually an enormous company now. They're called Rapid7. I found out. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, when they were pretty dang new. And I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I have no idea what this product does. I pulled the plug probably within a couple of weeks. And it was cool to see all of those guys that I started at the same time would do very, very well. It just wasn't my thing. I left and I swallowed my pride and went into the service industry for like five years until I I happened upon um, an unpaid internship at Quest Nutrition where I was able to make the best of that. My next question for you, um, how'd you come up with the name IQ Bar? Yeah, so that's a tricky one, right? Because you're there's that whole dynamic of don't pigeonhole yourself, you know, don't have a form factor in your name, and bar being the form factor, obviously, because it kind of it just circumscribes what you can do with the company. And I talked to early on a guy, one of the guys who co-founded Health Warrior, and they started as Chia Bar. And he's like, Yeah, you know, if I could give you a piece of advice, don't call it IQ Bar. <laughs> Because we call it Chia Bar and then we transitioned to Health Warrior and then Chia Bar was like one of our product lines, but you know, don't pigeonhole yourself. But then I like looked at RX Bar and I was like, eh, like there's good and bad things about it. My personal take is you want to tell people who you are in as few letters as possible. Like you're in an ideal world, your trademark both allows you to do a lot of things, but also immediately tells someone what you sell and why it's like unique or important. So for me, IQ bar was like the quickest possible way to achieve all those things. You have to do a little explaining, but people get the sense their ears perk up earlier than with other trademarks. I think I also just wanted a really short name. I was also thinking about like, is it brain bar? Is it this? Is it like, does brain feature into it in some way? But to me, that was always kind of like gross sounding, right? It's like an organ. It's like, you don't want, and now you're thinking about eating a brain, which is kind of weird, right? So IQ has this ethereal quality to it where it's like totally removed from the physiology of, you know, your brain. Um, so I just really like that as well. And also it's globally recognized. Like everyone knows what it is. Yeah. I would guess that people that don't have the highest intelligence quotient probably don't though. Acronyms are a tough one. When you're talking about having as few letters as possible, getting the messaging across in the trademark and also having the latitude to do different things, what are some other brands that have done that? Because for me, RX Bar, although they did well, it's not too clear what exactly that is unless it's like a, a CrossFitter. You know, RX is like the standard weights of like the prescribed weights for different workouts or whatever it may be. What are some other brands that you think do that well? And by the way, like we will become IQ Co as a brand. What one good brand that does this is um, Life Aid. If you're familiar with them, so they're mm-hmm. Life Aid. That's the name of the brand. And then there's Fit Aid, Immunity Aid, et cetera, et cetera. So like fill in the blank Aid. And so for us, it's switched around to IQ fill in the blank. So IQ Bar. We came out with a hydration product called IQ Mix. And then we're going to roll out other IQ products. So IQ is really the recognizable thing. But 
I mean, I always think of RX bar as the one that's like tied to a form factor, but I mean, there's a ton of bars, right? Pro bar, cliff bar, cliff bar and company. I mean, it is cliff, right? Just like it's IQ, but we're definitely not the first one to have bar. You know, there's probably a 10 successful bar brands where bar is in the name. I remember early days at Quest, it was questproteinbar.com and it was called Quest Bar on the bars. And then it, we ultimately took over Quest Nutrition. And then I'm thinking of another example of this bar saves lives. I believe now it's just this, this saves, saves lives. lives. Yeah. Very, very interesting. When I think it's about some of the biggest brands in the world, I don't know if they really did that. Like Amazon, they started pretty much as an online well, bookstore. Th- think about like, this is not like a bar company, but like nuts.com, right? or stamps.com there's a ton of large entities that you could argue quote unquote pigeonhole themselves but sell a lot more than that thing cauliflower is another one that comes to mind yep 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 i don't know that there's a perfect answer because i actually do think it's better to have bar in the name because they know what it is like right away and if that's your hero product line and you know just like quest right what percentage of their sales are bars. I mean, it has to be 80, at least 80%. I don't know if that's the scale these days. I know early on when it was just bars, powders, chips, and then they have different types of bars. There was Hero Bar, there was Cereal Bar. Um, What I think they did a good job at looking back in hindsight was they ultimately owned the word Quest, less so nutrition, like it was kind of implied. But, you know, under it, the statement of identity was very important. It was Quest Protein Bar, Quest Hero Bar, Quest Cereal Bar, Quest... And, you know, fill in the yeah. blank. And I think they did that same same playbook and it worked out very, very well. Like Quest Protein Chips, Quest Tortilla Style Protein Chips. So I think they did a very, very solid job. And I'm not sure they're 80% sales bars, maybe like the full variety of them. I know that chips and powders, powders probably not so much. RTDs are doing all right. I know pizza's uh, doing well and they have all sorts of different form factors now with like mini bars, and, you know, cups and all of that. But one funny story with the peanut butter cups back in the day were called Quest Cravings. I think that's a perfect example of not understanding what the hell the product was. Um, they were super dry and they finally reformulated them and they're, they're really good, but now they're just called protein peanut butter cups. I think. To me, it's like, just be explicit. Like all, if all else fails, be it as explicit as possible and as simple as possible. Yeah, I think sometimes clarity is much more important than creativity. What were some of the other names that you had before you landed on IQ Bar and IQ Go? The noggin bar. That's <laughs> one. I like bought the name for noggin bar, but then that's like a Nickelodeon show, I think. And that was like, uh, kind of weird. And just in retrospect, like, it's too like childish, I think. I think that was it. And then uh, part of it's just what can you trademark? You yeah. know, what's out there? So I think I had a bunch of ideas and I, was, and I would just go on the USPTO trademark database and just search stuff. But yeah, yeah I think IQ bar was one of the earlier ones, though. And it just, it was trademarkable and it was like, okay, like, can I do better than that? I don't think so. So I don't think that it may sound silly given what I just have said for the last 10 minutes, but once you pick it, I don't know that it's all that important. So long as it achieves the things I talked about, you can skin the cat like three, four or five different ways. So I think you just, just start building brand equity on whatever it is you, you chose. Sure. I like uh, IQ and the name for what it's worth. I was playing around with that with Burfi. It's very similar. You know, it's a, a soda for your brain. It's got the L-theanine in it. And there's either turmeric or ashwagandha. And was playing around with it. I ended up pulling away because another company did a, their prebiotic soda 
they did a really good job of saying soda with smarts. So I pulled off of that, went in a different direction. Uh, definitely came across the mind when I was trying to think of perfect state. What's that? Think. What's that brand? Uh, Vina, their tagline up top is soda with smarts. They just rebranded, a, I think, earlier this year. Earlier Before that, they looked more like a Mediterranean soda, just white with blue stripes. And they, I think they went with like, uh, it's an apple cider vinegar drink that also has some other properties, I think. Uh, Got it. Yeah. What was your first big breakthrough with IQ? We got into CBS really early, which was like financially a big breakthrough. Also, we did a Kickstarter. That was like what kicked it off. And then I raised some money on the back of that because I was able to justify a decent valuation because I could kind of prorate those sales. And then we segued that into a website and segued that into an Amazon presence. And so I guess we had a mini breakthroughs in that we just started doing pretty well on Amazon and to a lesser extent our website. And this was like 2018 and you know, keto was just booming and we just started taking off just organically on Amazon. So that was sort of a mini breakthrough, but then yeah, CVS approached us basically about doing a pilot. We did the pilot in a few stores, did well. And then we went into, I think it was 3000 CVSs, which is totally backwards of what everyone else would tell you to do. And in retrospect, probably not the best move, but it got us a massive amount of revenue and allowed us to basically raise more money at a good value, at an even better valuation. So it was kind of a good means to an end. And yeah, we had to grow up very, very quickly. We were in every city in America within six months of our, of, you know, selling our first unit. So yeah. And then ultimately we're not in CVS anymore. So ultimately that just like, it wasn't, it's hard to sell healthy food in CVS, especially with, you know, something sub two year shelf life. But yeah. And then we got into Kroger within like nine months. Uh, Cause we went to this show and met buyer and she liked us and got into Kroger and that was a huge win. It's kind of like dominoes, you know, it's like you get one retailer, which leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. But still to this day, we're a majority e-commerce company. There's still 60% e-commerce and we're in like 7,500 doors. So honestly, Amazon has been like that. If I were to give you one word of, you know, what has driven our growth? It's Amazon. Did you find that people were predominantly stumbling upon you organically because of the keto search or the brain boosting search? Well, bars are very, as you know, diet forward. Like people analyze bar labels harder than I think any other category, like in the entire grocery store. So everyone comes to that category with like preconceived desires for really protein and sugar are the top two, but then to a lesser extent, you know, to a still large extent, net carbs. So if you're on keto, obviously you care about that. And then, you know, protein source is a plant protein and clean label, quote unquote, you know, whatever that means to that person, et cetera, et cetera. But it's always been diet first and the brain nutrient thing is a nice like, rounding element. But if you don't hit their checklist on diet first, second and third, you're not even going to get to tell the brain nutrient story. That's uh, advice I constantly get and why I focus mainly on like the, the frame of reference for perfume being a low sugar soda first and foremost. And then it's also keto certified, but not everyone knows that low sugar is a lot easier to understand than keto certified even to this day in the 10 years that it's been really a, a trend. But going back to CVS, what was that main 
you know, reason that maybe you, you pulled out of there or however that happened? Was it, from what I know, CBS is historically one, maybe two units every week or two. It was at velocities and contained a certain story or did you want to focus your resources on Kroger after that? No, it's just the channel. I mean, drug is a really, really tough channel and it's not one, two. It's like, you're crushing it, crushing it. If you're doing like 0.75 in certain sets, you know, if you're up front, it's a different story, but we were on like this kind of random end cap. So, I mean, drug is tough. And then the set we were in was tough. So it just compounded how tough it was. I won't regurgitate all the conventional wisdom that a million other people will have said, but it, it just is true that you got to find retailers that align, you know, retailers that service demos that align well with your brand and just hammer those. Don't waste your time with channels and or specific retailers where you're just not going to s- succeed. One of the trickiest things as an entrepreneur is not to take shiny objects or not to to ignore, be able to ignore, have the discipline to ignore shiny objects. It's very, very hard. I wasn't going to say this uh, if you were still in CBS, but I'm glad it worked out for you and that was able to help you paint a picture to land a greater valuation and even Kroger. Um, but one thing I was told early on, and I'll never, ever forget this saying is CVS is where brands go to die. Eh. And <laughs> it was said in a meeting and I, this is when I was just a sponge and I was like, listening to everything, trying to, you know, just put things in my pocket for a later date. And somebody said that and I was like, damn, I don't know. I don't know if you could say that any better or if that's any better of a cautionary tale to not necessarily focus on because yeah, unless you're candy and, and that big bag. It seems very, very tough in a place like CVS or Walgreens. Yeah, or Red Bull or Old yeah. Spice. Or, like there's certain brands that absolutely crush in drug. Um, it's just not healthy food. <laughs> what was one of the biggest challenges in creating a bar? I'll preface this with, I feel like one of the things I get told the most is beverage is super competitive and it's super expensive. Like then there's like a facetious good luck. And I feel like bar is very, very similar. I remember my early days at Quest, right when I came in the first weekend I was there, they're like, hey, go to this CrossFit show and demo. I was like, you got it. I went and demoed and we could not give out protein bars to CrossFitters. They're like, nope, I don't do that. It's not paleo. It was super strict back then. And once they tried it, this is when we just launched Cookie Dough. Once they tried it, they were like, they come back 30 minutes later, maybe 45 minutes later after their, their water or whatever. They're like, I need more of this. What was one of your biggest challenges in creating a company in such a competitive landscape? Yeah, I hate the competitive thing. Like everything's competitive. The market naturally reaches an equilibrium. So it's competitive because it's huge. The market will bear what the market will bear. So, you know, companies will go out a bit, I guess, with the caveat of when there were so many venture dollars flying around, a lot of entities could artificially exist. And so it was not at market equilibrium. So I guess that that would be a pretty big caveat, but you know, it's a huge, huge, huge category. So I don't think about it as a category. I think about it as a basket of subcategories. So we don't compete with Cliff, we just don't. It's maybe the same form factor. That's where the comparison stops. We compete with, you know, keto plant-based protein bars, which in and of itself is a very, very large subcategory. It's not that competitive, actually. <laughs> it's like, you know, four or five brands. That's how I think about the whole competition thing. 
And like for you, it'd be like zero sugar, you know, soda. Well, yeah, soda's competitive. I guess now there are getting to be a lot of zero sugar sodas, but like even within that, it's like, you know, clean label zero sugar soda, whatever the angle is, or Olipop, you know, prebiotic, whatever the spin on that subcategory is, it isn't all that competitive. I think it's just like find the so like find the right subcategory that aligns with your brand and really lean into that. I don't know how else to put it. Just yes, it, you will have competitors. Like, so what? Be better than them. Like, out execute them. If, if you can't, you didn't deserve to exist anyway. I love it. And that's kind of how, how I view it as well. And regarding competitors, I love Olipop and Poppy for creating a category that didn't exist in functional pop, particularly the functional soda for your gut. And I think that you and I kind of had a same aha moment where you fulfilled a ready-to-eat need state with a, a bar, a vegan keto bar for your brain. And the way that I thought about it as well was, well, if there's going to be a zero sugar soda, I think Zevia is probably the best. And if there's going to be a little bit of sugar soda that has function, particularly for your gut, there's Poppy, there's Olipop, and even those two have their own points of difference. Olipop has their Oli Smart, and Poppy has the apple cider vinegar, and they actually made that taste good. But for me, one thing that I really wanted to do was have another low sugar soda. Perfy's three to four grams of sugar. It's just from the, not from concentrate fruit juice. I wanted to implement allulose, which I think has a, a fantastic mouthfeel for a beverage. In liquid, it gives it more of that full sugar soda feel. And I wanted to add elements that were just happen to be good for your brain. So low sugar soda first, elements that are good for your brain, and be one of the first through the door for brain health sodas. There's every brand has created some sort of line extension or category extension that is like, like Health Aid is another one. Amazing kombucha, but now they have a functional soda. Even I think coffee companies even have functional sodas now, but they're all for gut health. So for me, the story I always tell is yes. Poppy and Olipop might be competitors. We might be in you know the same category data, but there's not quite a soda positioned for your brain yet. And that's that's what I went with. Yeah. And then the question is, does anyone care? Right. Do people want that? Which is always a, the open question. We'll find out, you know, we'll see if I deserve to exist. And same with us, right? And yeah. that, that's what we get asked too. To, does anyone want that? And so that's where oh, I find it to be really interesting. It's like no one goes into a grocery store looking for brain food. It just doesn't happen. Same with no one searches for it. So it's not the door opener. It's the door closer for us. It's just like the hierarchy or the, the, the customer journey is so delicate and so important that I think certain brands that you can go too hard on the brain angle, right? Um, which sounds funny and ironic because that's like a huge differentiator, but I found it to be a very delicate balance you have to strike. Yeah, 100%. Nobody knew. I call it Perfy 1.0 on those labels. I chose a statement of identity that was very, very hard to understand. I said adaptogenic nootropic soda, and nobody knew what that was. They knew what aldeanine was. They knew ashwagandha is and turmeric is. And I made those changes to 2.0 to accommodate that. But with regards to the brain, I actually, for a second, was going to have on the 2.0 labels for a happy brain. But Coca-Cola actually pulled me aside and said, hey, you nailed the formula. It makes my brain happy, but it also makes my taste buds happy. You should go with for a happy you. And my brain exploded. I smiled, I nod, I shook hands. And I was like, thank you. And I immediately put that on the new label. I was super into it. Regarding your, your comments on do people want it? My 
thesis is that they just don't know it exists in a food or beverage format. If you think about nootropic supplements on Amazon, there's hundreds, if not thousands of different pills that people take. And one of my major hypotheses was Gen Z wants their supplements in food or beverage format. And although we aren't, we're not targeting Gen Z 100%, they're really loving the branding and they're all about it. They reach out to all the time. I wanted to create a soda that was, that looked cool, that blended a little bit of retro and new school, but took a traditionally, like ingredients that were traditionally in pills and put them into a delicious low sugar format. And that, that was kind of my whole thought process behind it. Yeah, totally. That's why Ollie, the supplement company did so well. They took things that used to be pills and made them like a chewable snack, right? With gummies. People like chewing and eating and feeling like it's food-like, not taking pills. The one thing I find with those, the gummies though, is that they're easy to overconsume. At least I'll speak for myself. Like how much of that functional ingredient can you actually take without being over the top with that dosage? And same thing with Goldie. I think they went over over the top with their claims on ashwagandha. So I think there's a, a balance that people have to walk. And that's why you know, the dosage in Burfi is what it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally. But I think that's a separate issue from just the principle of make something food-like versus taking a, a capsule. I mean, I obviously agree. We do the same thing. And there's just so many examples, liquid IV, right? Just get sodium and potassium in your body um, via drink. Like, I actually don't have a problem with taking supplements, but I'm also not Gen Z. So it's like, add some enjoyable elements to the consumption process and the consumer will consume it more, more of it. They'll pay more for it. So like that enjoyable aspect to it is, well, it tastes good or it's an enjoyable eating or consumption experience or drinking experience. So it just allows you to like level up everything and increase frequency by doing that. There are some supplements that I just can't imagine taking in a food or a drink format. And I take a, like a beef liver pill and a bone marrow pill. And I just saw that brand do a recipe where they made gummies. I had to scroll away from it because it just, for some reason, grossed me out. Like I'll, I'll take those in pill form any day of the week. Well, also actives taste terrible 99% of the time, right? Like caffeine tastes horrifically bad. Like every nootropic pretty much is bitter. I mean, there's a few that aren't, but most are. So it's just very, very, very hard to make that work in a food or beverage context. Yeah, that was part of how we selected L-leonine, ashwagandha, turmeric. They were a little bit easier to mask. Sometimes people confuse the turmeric, which is very, very bitter in, in our citrus flavors. Uh, they confuse that for like an artificial sweetener. There's nothing artificial. So that's something I've had to, to balance and try to figure out. But um, yeah, just there's some things that have to be in pill format because it's just, they're not that enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, the irony is like you can get the best stuff from pills because you're not constricted by like, oh, does this taste good? Is it mouth, good mouthfeel? The yada, 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 right? It's just pure, like, what does my body need and in what quantities? Great. So in some ways, it's kind of like liberating selling capsules. But again, like you can't get around the fact that people don't like taking capsules. Um, they like drinking drinks and eating foods. Agreed. Hey, um, well, aside from what was your biggest breakthrough with IQ? 
what has been your biggest win to date that you would love to celebrate? Hmm. And getting into Walmart was pretty damn big. And then we got expanded. We doubled our presence there. That was awesome. I'm literally, I'm doing this from LA. We're doing a Costco roadshow and we're absolutely crushing the roadshow. So that's a pretty damn big win. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like every six month period has like a win and they're none are bigger than the other because they are big for that particular moment in the life cycle of the business. You know, maybe like earlier wins are like on an absolute basis smaller, but at that moment, rel- you know, proportional to where the company was, they're the same size or bigger. So every major retailer you get is massive. I think the Amazon, I mean, is our biggest part of our business. And that one's hard because it's like, it's gradual. So it's not like emphatic, boom, we got, we hit this number. You know, it's, you're just growing over time. And then you look back, you're like, oh, holy shit, double the size we were six months ago. You know, but it's just, it's a little bit different of a quality of a feel to that win. Cause you know, you grew whatever, 15% every month. Retailers just have that nice quality of like, emphatic we weren't here now we're in a thousand doors that's a very cool way of looking at it like different time periods have big wins when but they're equal to where you're at at that stage is amazon growth still organic or are you pumping a little bit of ad spend in there oh no i mean we spend a lot on ads but proportional to how much we're doing it's nothing crazy um we still run a profitable amazon business and we're we are double the size like our monthly Revenue is double what it was in January as of July. So we're growing rapidly. The same woes that everyone complains about, you know, on D2C that they they exist for us. But D2C is only 15% of our business. So we've been largely immunized from the whole customer acquisition cost thing. Beautiful. I think think you're the first person that uh, I've heard say that in a couple of years. Yeah. Well, it's just... Amazon versus DTC, it's pretty simple. If you have a big DTC business, you, you're screwed for on iOS 14.5 unless you are like have an insane repeat purchase rate or super subscription heavy. Like, I, like that just seems to be what it is now. I've heard stories of people testing different ways of advertising uh, over the past year and a half where people have found some ways to win on Reddit or even some people testing Pinterest. I know. Um, TikTok's getting all the craze, both organic and paid, and they're evolving as an attribution data source. And one other brand, and I hate to do the this is like an organic, you know, shout out to Triple Whale. The Triple Whale is uh, an awesome attribution platform that shows you all of your channels in one place. Um, they also happen to be a sponsor of the show. Yeah, no, we've talked to them. We we don't use them yet, but I know of them. Like all that's cool. It's not scalable though. <laughs> So I'm interested in scalable things. I mean, maybe it's scalable. I think that the TikTok advertising could be. I think the jury's still out on that one, which would be awesome, right? Like to be able to replace the whole magic of Facebook, Instagram that so many businesses were built off of. And I think TikTok, if you like have some really good regimen for creating organic content, like that can be scalable, sort of. It's definitely much less scalable than a paid ads like uh, regimen on Facebook and Instagram, but if you're like, if you can consistently create great organic content and like mix in a little luck there and, and there's high purchase intent, right? That's a critical one too. So you can go viral and who cares? Cause the, just the purchase intent isn't there. 
So like if all those things mix together, I think you can kind of piece it together along with like direct mail. And there definitely are all these other ways to get creative. And to me, it's always like work backwards from scalability. Like this can work episodically. Can this be a system that like repeatedly works and grows and scales? That's what I think is the trickier problem with alternative ways of of driving business. Or not like, or it just, you just have to get people in the door. And again, you have just such a high repeat purchase rate or subscription rate that it's scalable because of that, right? Like you have all these episodic ways of driving people to your site and you're just so sticky that it's just sort of continuously additive. Yeah. I'm big on like, I like first purchase profitability and I know that there's a way to win with LTV, like factored into the equation, but I've actually come across some folks in the past that are averse to even being in the hole at all. Every business is different. Every founder is different. And I've worked with a bunch of brands over the past five years on the on my agency side of the business, totally different from Perfy. And it's just interesting. I think a lot of times it's easier to win with somebody that's open to that sort of conversation of, hey, it might cost us five, 10, $15 to acquire this customer as a subscriber or to upsell them to a subscriber. But over the course of you know three or four different subscription conversions will be X and profitable. It's interesting that some people aren't open to that. Yeah. I mean, it's like everyone wants first purchase profitability. The people who want higher LTV versus CAC, it's, that's not because they don't want, <laughs> it's like, that's because they have to be in that position. It's, we all want the same thing at a core level, like less cost, more revenue. That's literally not possible in many models. You have to be like, okay, well, at least I can get there on the LTV side. Yeah. And one of, I think one of the things that's painted a bad picture around this kind of scenario is you've probably heard a million stories of different D2C brands that are doing 80, 100 million, but still aren't profitable. And I think that the CAC versus LTV game can be pretty catastrophic if thought about in the wrong ways. Yeah. I think it's all, what are you working backwards from? Like just top line? Yeah. Okay. Then great. Like, yeah, go do that. And that was what people were working backwards from for a long, long time. That now is not the case. So, okay. What are you now working backwards from? Like X growth percentage and profitability? Okay. Change the model. I mean, which is, I'm making it sound simple. Of course, that's like a dramatically disruptive shift. You know, if your whole DNA is built on... The former, the latter is going to be really, really, really tough and maybe so tough that you got a business or, well, whatever, you know, there could be many, again, it's extremely disruptive, but it just is what it is. It just is what it is. I hear. I think it was an acceptable thing and something that was applauded and rewarded in the past. And I think that there is a North Star and a balance to be walked between being profitable as close to first purchase profitable and then calculating how many purchases it takes to be profitable. I think some DTC brands may have taken it too far. And I think that there's a balance that, that can be walked where it's not necessarily a bad thing to play that calculation. Um, but either way, the tides are shifting and everyone's going to bottom line. And you got to be on your channel. Like we fund our business with brick and mortar, period, end of sentence. Like that is how we fund our business. So, you know, that's quite profitable. The customer acquisition cost is zero versus whatever, you know, 25 bucks, 25, 28 or whatever it is. So I think omni-channel is just 
like for me, a must um, and, and for our brand in 2022. Not necessarily like right out the gate, but like that's a thing to work towards for at least for like a business like ours. For me, I thought I could go at least six months, gain 10,000 customers, then break into retail. I'm not going to lie. Within 48 hours of our launch in February, I was like, nope, pushing heavy on the retail button and completely <laughs> switched the strategy. I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait, wait, wait any longer. Which is not to say retail is a walk in the park at all. Honestly, man, it's everyone's on life support until they're not. How do you get off life support? A big profitable customer, yeah. big profitable retailer. That will take you off life support. So it's like, what's the path to that? And can you get there before you die? To me, that's like the equation we're all playing. Unless you have some stupidly high margin, you know, you're selling jewelry or whatever. Well, then great. Like you have 85% margin, just go on having high customer acquisition costs. Uh, that is the, the main brass tax question. How fast can you get off live support before you die? I like that. Will, it was a, a pleasure having you on this show. And I, before we always sign off, I love giving the audience and I'll, I'll tag it in the show notes, but where can uh, folks find you online? Yeah, man, this was a blast. Um, so we are at eatiqbar.com, E-A-T-I-Q-B-A-R.com. And we're on Amazon and we're on Walmart, Kroger, Wagman, Sprouts, Rite Aid, and Costco in the SoCal region. Actually, no, people aren't going to, people are listening to this. It's going to be over. But yeah, uh, website, Amazon are, the, are those retailers. And then, yeah, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Pretty active there. And uh, eat IQ bar at eat IQ bar is all, all of our socials. Gotcha. I'll tag all of these. I'll even uh, put your store locator in the show notes. And when is your rotation done in Costco SoCal? This episode will likely go live Thursday or Friday this week. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, if you're by Tustin or San Juan Capistrano locations, uh, we're going to be there starting on Thursday, which is, what is that? 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th. And we just finished up at um, Westlake Village and Woodland Hills. And we absolutely crushed it. So yeah, we got to crush it in those two locations. And then hopefully we get into the region. Awesome, man. Well, congrats on that. And I'll make sure this is all down in the show notes. Well, thanks for being on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.